Amen. Howdy, church. It's good to see you all. We're missing a few folks this morning. I guess that's what happens when you send uh, 75,000 college students off on spring break, right? And a few other family members and folks who are traveling this week. Uh, as we begin this morning, I want to say uh, a little bit about this coronavirus phenomenon. And uh, I'm not going to make fun of it or anything like that. It's a serious deal. There are people who are uh, losing the, the battle with that uh, virus. So we want to treat it with dignity and respect, right? Um, but a couple of things I just want to say. First of all, it is, it is changing our behavior, I think. Um, I was at a conference this past weekend. Uh, the past week, rather, Thursday, Friday, and yesterday, I got back home yesterday, and one of the first persons I met uh, was a guy from Seattle. And I said, oh, that's really nice to meet you. Uh, the next guy I met was from uh, South Korea. And I said, it's really nice to meet you. <laughs> so I found myself doing this more and more and more as the conference went on, right? So it's changing our behavior. There's a couple of observations that I want to make. Um, we, we literally did just send like 75,000 kids into the great Petri dish of this world, right? I mean, we just did that. So my hunch is it's coming to College Station. I have a hunch that that's probably going to happen. Um, and so just a couple of things to, to let you know is that if, if something were to occur and there needed to be protocol in place, we will let you know. Uh, in the meantime, uh, if you don't feel well, don't come to church. Okay. Now, by that, I don't mean to say I don't feel like going to church. That's not what I'm talking about, okay? I mean, literally, if you don't feel well physically or if you're coughing or if you've got a fever, well, just stay home. You know, call your doctor and go get it taken care of. Uh, keep your fingers out of your mouth, okay? It's just a good rule of practice. No matter how old you are, uh, I encourage you to do that. If we need to, we get to the place where we need to digitally stream assemblies and give online and that kind of stuff, we'll, we'll do that. But the most important thing I want to say right now is, you know, let's, uh, let's just be sensible and practical and, and pray for people who have this virus because it's, uh, it's causing quite a stir uh, worldwide. Okay? Uh, we're going to be in a really intriguing text this morning. Go ahead and take your Bibles, if you'd like, and turn to Matthew chapter 15. And it's intriguing for a couple of reasons that we will get to. Uh, as the uh, text unfolds, and I'm actually going to have Zach McCartney partner with me this morning in this text because of uh, this past year, how much time and energy he has poured into learning not only about Jewish customs and Jewish culture, but about how Jesus, as a Jewish teacher, taught and operated and called disciples in that context, knowing that he was going to be looking much more long-term even when he calls us to be his disciples. And so a few opening thoughts and then Zach will share some background and then I'll come back up and uh, land the plane, okay? So that's where we're going this morning. So Matthew chapter 15, we are in this season of plugging in as a church we talked a lot about different ministries that are in play, and we're ramping up for our What If campaign to be able to support those outwardly focused ministries even more. But this morning is kind of a, let's, let's pull the car into the garage lesson. Let's get it up on the rack and look underneath, and let's check the, the wires and the, the cables and the pulleys and, and the belts and just, just see if we're running okay. 
This is really a lesson for us. And I realize that this morning a lot of our folks are gone, and so there's a strategic piece here. We didn't anticipate having tons and tons of guests today. If you're here, we're glad you're here, but want you to know that, that this is a time for us to just kind of stop and pause for a few moments and think about what happens to us as a church when we start to get serious about discipleship. Okay, are you with me so far? Okay, good. Let's look at the text, Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed, and she's suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. How awkward is it when there's silence in the room? Jesus didn't answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away because she keeps crying out after us. You see what happened right here? She went to Jesus. Jesus didn't respond. So next she went to Peter. <laughs> then she went to Andrew. Then she went to James. Then she went to John. She's working. The Somebody, please listen to me. My daughter is dying. I, 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 don't, I don't know what to do. Help me. Help me. And these disciples of Jesus say, Lord, could you just could you just tell her to go away? So he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now he says this to the crowd, to the woman specifically, nor to the disciples. He says it to everybody who's within earshot. So since he now speaks, the woman thinks, okay, here's my chance. Here's my chance to get his attention again. And so she, she comes and, and she kneels before him. The Greek word here is the exact same word we use for the word worship. She comes and she bows right down before Jesus. And she says, Lord, help me. And Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she said, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. I got to tell you, this is one of the most intriguing and fascinating texts in all of the New Testament. And if we read this through an English lens, if we read this through our, our, our eyes, seeing this through English language, looking at this text, it just really, really seems troubling. Did Jesus just give this woman the silent treatment? Really? Did Jesus, did he just call this woman a dog? 
So I've asked our resident Jewish scholar, Jack, uh, Zach McCartney, to join me up on stage this morning and to walk us through this context, not just of this story, but a context that helps us recognize what Jesus wants his disciples to understand. Thank you, Greg. And this is, in co-preaching, it's, it's really fun because you get to kind of break up the tasks just a little bit, and I get to do my favorite part, which is the analysis of the context, is figuring out what is going on, what is the original author trying to communicate to the original audience. And that's a really important part of interpreting the Bible. So you've you got to figure out what's going on so that then you can figure out what bearing does that have on us. And I'm so glad that Greg's wisdom is going to be um, taking care of that point. But I get to talk about the culture and the background and, and what this text is going on in the broader context of Matthew and, like Greg was saying, the, the Jewish context as well. I was on the golf team when I was in high school. Uh, I really like playing golf. If anyone ever wants to play golf, just ask me. I'll say yes and figure out a time. Um, one of the drills that our golf coach forced us to do um, in that it was so hard, they had to play a bunch of free golf, but um, he would take half of the clubs out of our bag and send us out to play. And that was a, a drill we did maybe once every couple of weeks. Uh, we had, when we did that, we only had seven clubs in our bag rather than 14. And if any of you know golf, um, there's lots of times where you feel really comfortable with a certain club for a certain shot in a certain situation. And when you don't have that club, you have to use a different one and kind of make it work. And it's, it's possible to make it work. You just end up hitting and using different shots. You end up getting it in the hole. It just sometimes takes you a little bit longer. So guys, I think that that is how we sometimes approach interpreting the Bible. Um, if we're just approaching, like Greg said, from sort of an English Westerner perspective. We usually get to the right outcome, right? We, we, we generally understand it rightly, but sometimes it takes a little bit more time and sometimes we end up using a circuitous route. I think that if we add a couple of clubs to our bag this morning, we're going to be able to see what Matthew was intending to communicate to his original audience. And so those two clubs, well, two and a half really, but we'll just stick with two. The first is some of this, the cultural context of a rabbi-disciple relationship. And then the second is understanding the setting of the place that we're dealing with. And so that's kind of where I'm going this morning. So this rabbi-disciple relationship, Easterners and Westerners think differently. Anyone who has traveled to the Eastern Hemisphere, to Asia, to the Middle East or anything, that you come quickly come into the understanding and realization that they just kind of go about things differently. Some of their habits and practices are different, and you can't quite put your finger on it, but you know you're not quite lining up with it. Uh, there's a lot of people who've done a lot of good research, and I'm just going to simplify it and tell you that the Westerner in general cares about what you think. We want to know what your doctrinal position is on this area or that area. We want to know, you know, what is communion and what is um, preaching and what is church. And we ask all of these abstract questions. The Easterner is far more concerned about how you live. They want to know how you're supposed to live, how God's word impacts what you're doing with your life. And so that's why when Jesus, who's an Easterner teaching to Easterners, is always telling parables. He's telling stories. He's showing you how the text is applied. But then more than that, this, in the context of a rabbi-disciple relationship, the teaching is not just the parable. 
The teaching is Jesus' actions. When Jesus called his disciples, he said, come, follow me. He did not say, here's a link to my podcast. Jesus did not say, here's my book. Learn about what I think. He said, come see how I live. And absolutely, he's transferring information. But at the same time, he's showing them. And so if we want to learn what Jesus is teaching, we not only have to pay attention to the words that he's saying, but also the actions that surround the words and the setting in which the teaching takes place. And I think the Easterners have something there. Because information transfer is, is never enough. It doesn't, you can, Satan can quote the scriptures too. He's going to beat you at Bible Bowl. Jesus is after full character transformation, and it takes more than just head knowledge for us to get that. Um, and so the other issue with this rabbi-disciple relationship that I think sets the context of this passage is the fact that in a rabbi-disciple relationship, it is the burden of the student to understand what the teacher is teaching. Do I have any teachers in this room? Can I raise your hand if you're a teacher? I know we have, okay, professor or any, any level of teacher. Um, if you are unclear about your teaching, raise your hand if you've ever gotten a parent email about you not explaining something properly. I was a math teacher for one year, and um, I, I, you have to understand that if you're not clear as a teacher to your student, then the burden falls back on you of, hey, you should have been more clear. Well, in this rabbi-discipleship relationship, my teachers are going to be a little bit envious here. The burden is on the student to figure out what the teacher is saying. It's not on the teacher. So sometimes the rabbi will be deliberately ambiguous to get his disciples to think. They'll throw something out there and see what their disciples make of it. Or sometimes maybe they'll be silent and they'll wait for their disciples to respond. And I think that that is the relationship that we're dealing with here in this story. So here's the half club that we got to deal with, and that's just the literary context. We're really, we don't, as Westerners, we sometimes get to look into, okay, where does this text fall within the greater context? But sometimes our chapters and verses don't do a good job of actually subdividing the section of text. So this text in Matthew 15, 21 fits within six stories that last from Matthew 14 to Matthew 16 all of which involve Jesus interacting with his disciples. So there's the feeding of the 5,000. It's back in Matthew chapter 14. And then there's Jesus pulling Peter out of the water after he asked them to row all night. And then there's a conflict with the Pharisees over the disciples' hygiene. We have this Canaanite woman at Jesus' feet. Then we have a feeding of the 4,000. And remember, those two feedings, Jesus tells the disciples to feed them. You give them something to eat. You guys figure it out. And the last, there's a conflict with the Pharisees, the sign of Jonah, that Gentile prophet, and an explanation to the disciples about everything that he was doing from this whole section. So at some point in your devotional, read 14 to 16 and see, see what I'm talking about here, but we're just going to go on from here. Let's come back to our passage. This woman cries out, and it says that Jesus does not answer a word. Matthew is trying to draw our attention to the silence. 
You know, if Jesus just took a while to respond, it would have just said the next thing that he said. But Matthew says deliberately that Jesus was being silent. And I think the reason is because Jesus wants his disciples to act. I think Jesus was waiting to see what his disciples would do. It fits right within what we know about this rabbi-disciple relationship. And what did they do? They asked Jesus to send her away. I think Jesus was heartbroken by this. I think he was like, man, you guys should have been getting this one. Especially Peter. You see, Matthew chapter 14 to 16 contains six stories. But more than that, it's six parallel stories. There's three sets of two. There are two massive feedings, 5,000 and 4,000. There are two conflicts with Pharisees. And there's a Canaanite woman who's at Jesus' feet crying out for help. And then there's Peter at Jesus' feet saying, Lord, save me, as he sinks into the water. Matthew chapter 14, verse 30 says, When he saw the wind and the waves, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out in his hand and caught him and said, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? Peter is the guy who's first out of the boat. Right? He's the oldest of them, so it's his place to be the person speaking up all the time, and boy, did he take advantage of it. He's the one who's the, the ready, fire, aim guy. He's trying to figure out. He wants to be a disciple of Jesus, and he just runs headlong into it. Why didn't he act? Did he forget where he was just a couple of days ago? Maybe a week? Did he forget that he was helpless and Jesus saved him? I think Jesus wanted Peter to see the connection and grab this woman and drag her before Jesus saying, Lord, she needs you like I did. But he didn't. None of the disciples did. They wanted Jesus to send her away because they were annoyed. Because she made them uncomfortable. I don't think she made Jesus uncomfortable. When Peter was at Jesus' feet, he saved him and said, You of little faith, why did you doubt? But when this woman threw herself at Jesus' feet, he honors her. He says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. So maybe you're with me so far, but you've yet to work out Jesus' statement about bread and crumbs and the lost sheep of Israel. It's where we're going. And I'm really excited about it because it, I think it's really cool. But to get where we're going, where Jesus is saying, we have to pull another one of those clubs out of our bag. And that is the club of geography, or setting. You see, in, in this passage, um, Matthew starts by telling us, um, well, actually first, setting matters. The Bible is written about real people who lived in a real time and place. And the setting affects the story. That's why it's included. Every detail in there is there for a reason. And oftentimes, the setting reinforces the teaching. As, as a few of us got to go and experience, hear RVL teach, he'd teach lessons about the desert when you were super hot in the desert. And hearing about being a stream of living water when you're super thirsty and hot, it, it is very memorable. It's impactful. And man, these rabbis were great teachers. Jesus in particular. He taught his disciples different lessons and different settings amongst different people. And amongst other things, it robbed the disciples of the ability to compartmentalize his teachings. And this is just an extra little thing, kind of a side note, but 
setting, I think, really affects how we think about church and God's stuff. If all that you do, if your only engagement with God's word is in this room, you're going to put on God brain when you get into this room. And then when you get into your car and it turns into lunch brain, you're going to kind of put this in that little compartment and head off to lunch. And then on Monday when you go to work, you'll get in your work brain. Every once in a while, mix it up. Do your Bible study at work and do some church stuff at home and figure out because I think it really has an impact. We see this model of Jesus teaching. He's teaching different lessons in different places. But if we consider the setting of this text, let's, just, let's take a look at it and see if it has anything to offer us. The first thing that Matthew tells us is, leaving, um, it says, uh, sorry, it says leaving that place, which that place is Capernaum. It's that area that's highlighted in red. Um, there was the, this is where the feeding of the 5,000 occurred. It's where the walking on the water happened. And it's where the first confrontation with the Pharisees occurred. And guys, this whole region is a very, very Jewish region. There's plenty of synagogues that we found there. And the text in Matthew 14 tells us that they landed at the shore of Knesseret, which I've highlighted the plain of Knesseret right there. So th this is, we know that this is where they started. The Jewish part of the Sea of Galilee. And then it tells us that they left that area, Jesus left that territory, and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And guys, these are Phoenician port cities. If you've ever heard of the kingdom of Phoenicia, any Roman history fans, Carthage was another Phoenician port city. But Mark, this is why Mark's gospel calls this woman the Syro-Phoenician woman, because it's the Roman providence of Syria, and the name is Phoenicia. Um, and so Jesus and his disciples walked from the area that was highlighted all the way up to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and this is not an easy journey. That's the terrain that's between. It's, it's the upper Galilee, it's mountainous and hilly, so it takes a while. There's a couple roads that weave through there, but it took them a while to get there. So I'd like for you to, to imagine yourself as one of Jesus' disciples. You've just spent the past few days walking out of Jewish territory through those rugged mountains and into the Phoenician lands. Lands that are not remembered well in Jewish history. Their god, Moloch, was an awful god. He was the child sacrifice god. Jezebel is who brought Moloch into Israel. Do you think the disciples ever wondered what they were doing in Tyre and Sidon? And then some foreign woman starts pestering you, and your rabbi is not saying anything, and so you ask him to deal with her. And your rabbi says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? Wouldn't that confuse you just a little bit? We just spent the past week walking up to Tyre and Sidon, and you just told us that you're sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. What's going on here? Why was he in Tyre and Sidon? And what's this point about bread and crumbs? Didn't you just see Jesus turn five loaves into a massive feast that fed 5,000 people? Didn't you collect 12 basketfuls of crumbs just like a few days ago? What's this deal with this scarcity and this bread? Why is he using this language? So, okay, after this, you head back to the Sea of Galilee, and you're thinking about this, and you come to a fork in the road. And if you go right, you'll go back to that Jewish territory that we just talked about. But Jesus doesn't go right. He goes left, and he heads up onto the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, the region of Golanitis and the Decapolis. 
And he goes up on a mountainside. And Matthew chapter 15 tells us this. Jesus left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, and bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, they laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, and the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they praised the God of Israel. I mentioned parallel stories, feeding of the 5,000, feeding of the 4,000. Parallelism is used to highlight the differences between the two stories. These are a different people group. It's a different religion that he's dealing with here. That first story did not say they praised the God of Israel, but this one draws our attention to it. So right after Jesus said he was sent to Israel, lost sheep of Israel, he starts doing ministry outside of Israel. What's he doing here? What's he teaching? This would be like me saying that I was sent to the many lost sheep of the Longhorns of Texas, and so I move to College Station and start doing ministry. Right? And if that isn't clear enough, Jesus then argues with the Pharisees about the sign of Jonah, who's that Gentile prophet that we talked about a few weeks ago, and heads to Caesarea Philippi, which is the most pagan city in the entire region. It's, it's up north there. There are four temples to Greek gods up in Caesarea Philippi, and there was this stream that came out of Mount Hermon that many people believed at the time they worshipped there because they believed it was the, the river Styx. It was the mouth of Hades. It was the gates of Hades, and Jesus draws on that in a text we're going to look at in a couple of weeks. Guys, Matthew is trying to communicate something to us here. He's trying to show us something about Jesus' ministry, about what Jesus is teaching his disciples and who Jesus' ministry is for. If Jesus was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel, his actions don't make any sense. But if we read carefully, we see that that statement was not made to the woman. It was made to his disciples and anyone else who was around there. In a section where Jesus was doing his best to teach them about what his mission was all about. If you remember there's 28 chapters in Matthew. Where we start is a genealogy beginning with Abraham, the first Hebrew. Where we end is going to all nations, baptizing and making disciples of all people. This is the point where it starts to turn. Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Yes, he was. He's Israel's Messiah. He didn't cease to be Israel's Messiah when he started serving the Gentiles. But he was sent to the lost sheep of Israel for the sake of the entire world. Israel was always blessed to be a blessing. They had relationship with God so they could show the world what God looked like. And they lost sight of that relationship. See, if you know anything about the history of Israel, you'll know that in the period of the kings, they assimilated to the cultures around them. They became just like them. And so they lost the land. So the Jews that came back from that Babylonian exile were like, we're never doing that again. We're going to stay pure. We're going to be the people of God and we're not going to make any mistakes. But in doing that, they withdrew from the world. They turned their back on the mission. They were never blessed so that they could be the people of God and everyone else could go to hell. They were blessed so that they could show the world what God was like. That's what Jesus is constantly drawing their attention towards. 
That's what the disciples at this point in the story missed. That's what the Pharisees missed. And guys, it's sometimes what we miss. So Greg's going to come up and he's going to draw our attention to what this text is really telling us. Thank you, Zach. I just want to let you all know that you know, Zach spent multiple hours this week really mining the depths of the historical background, and it is extremely valuable for us to understand. It's so important to understand the intended message to the intended audience, but then there's also a ripple effect of that intended message. There's a message for us as well. And so a couple of things I just want us to focus on, I would just call these a handful of takeaways as I think about the text that we've interacted with this morning in Matthew 15. First of all, I think that we as a church, in many ways, we are in our history where Jesus was at this particular point in his ministry. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus is not turning his back on Israel. Do you agree? He loves Israel. Uh, matter of fact, even after his death, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he will continue to try to woo Israel back to him. He will try to continue to place Israel in the place that, even as it was prophesied to Abraham many, many, many centuries ago, that through Israel, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Jesus is, he's not turning his back on Israel. But there is something that is in play here. I believe this is a hinge moment in Jesus' ministry. And by that I mean, you know, what, what is the purpose of a hinge? We put it on a door for what purpose? To be able to allow that door to open, right? So that we can go into new space and also to maybe close that door behind us, but we don't close it and lock it permanently, right? We leave it as a way to be able to go in and to go out. But this is a hinge moment in Jesus' ministry. There is a, a much broader opening into the Gentile world as a result of this interaction. It's what he wants his disciples to understand. It is no longer about us. This isn't his first interaction with the Gentiles, but it's one of the most significant interactions with the Gentiles because all of his disciples learn a very, very powerful lesson here. So how is this played out? How is this hinge moment manifested in Jesus' ministry? Well, one of the first things that I see is that Jesus leaves comfort to be comfort. He leaves comfort to be comfort. And there's a couple of ways that that plays out, at least two ways. There are probably more. First of all, it's the 30,000-foot view. It is that Jesus leaves heaven, the comfort of heaven, the comfort of being in his Father's presence, of being in community with Father and Holy Spirit. He leaves that for a season for an earthly life. And he does that to face the threat to humanity. And, of course, that is Satan. And he overcomes Satan and he overcomes death. But there's a second level as well that's in play here. Jesus also leaves cultural comfort to begin a cultural revolution. Jesus was a Jewish man who was hanging out mostly with Jewish people in Jewish places for Jewish purposes, okay? 
So he knows the vocabulary. They can talk all day long about Torah. They can talk all day long about the commandments of God and how that's to be played out in community. And they can laugh about Jewish things and, and cry about Jewish things. And they, they know it so well. He knows it so well. He'd be very comfortable in his entourage. But he steps outside of this entourage. He steps outside of his culture. What he knows what he's comfortable with in order to be a comforter to those in other spaces and cultures. So what am I not saying? And I want you to notice here what I, what I didn't say. Jesus, I didn't say Jesus left comfort to make us feel comfortable. There's a major difference in being a comfortable or being a comforter and being made comfortable. Are you with me so far? It's a major difference. As we engage in spiritual war, and I think, I don't know about you, but when you're out and about in the world during the week, it can be a pretty tough place, right? A lot that drags us down and a lot that tries to pull our hearts away from the heart of God. So as we engage in spiritual war, we come into this space Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, in part to be comforted. To celebrate what God is doing. To encourage one another. To build one another up. I think we could use the, uh, the end result, that that's, or get to the end result, that's comforting. I'm comforted when you speak positive things to me. I'm comforted when you encourage me. And I hope you experience the same type of comfort when we are in space together. So being comforted is part of the equation, but being comforted is not the only reason that we're here. It's part of our time together, but we're also here to be challenged, to respond to questions requests to respond to opportunities in ways that being hope and healing that put us in position to be hope and healing to those within our circles of influence. I believe that we are being challenged unlike ever before in our culture, but I take great courage in this time. Why? Because I believe that God is revealing His call upon our church. I believe that this season in the life of our church is a hinge moment. I believe the Lord is opening the door for us to see and experience Him a little bit differently in the future than perhaps we have in the past. And I think one of the primary ways that that plays out is, is that we are becoming a little less focused on self and a little bit more focused on others. I want you to notice this passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. For Christ's love compels us. It compels us to do what? Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves. 
but for him who died for them and was raised again. I want you to notice a couple of key phrases in that passage. First of all, we no longer live for ourselves. Who do we live for? You tell me. We live for Christ Jesus. We live for Christ Jesus. But because we live for Christ, we wade into spaces where there is pain and hurt and hopelessness. We want others to be brought into this place of comfort, into this place of challenge, into this place where they can learn the language of Jesus and experience the culture of Jesus to be alleviated from the pain and the hurt. How do I know this is a hinge season for our church? I think it is observable in our language. I think we see it in our attitudes. I think we see it in our behaviors. I'm convinced that God is calling us to shift our focus, to be a little bit less about us and a little bit more about others. And notice I'm using this phrase here a little bit intentionally. Because we don't ever want to lose sight of what's behind. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't say, I'm turning my back on Israel. He loved Israel. I'm not saying we turn our backs on one another. We love one another. And we got to continue to live into that. But we have also got to open our eyes more and more and more to the plight of those around us, particularly those who do not know Jesus. And so more and more, we are, we are trying to be a little more outwardly focused. And I think that's a good thing. Think about it this way, church. If you were to go to the doctor and you were to say, Doc, I'd really like to drop about 20 pounds. And he said, well, there's a real easy way to do that. We're just going to cut one of your legs off. Well, that'd be ridiculous, right? Well, you're not going to do that. But if he said, well, okay, here's what we're going to do, or if your doctor is a woman, if she says, here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to put you on an exercise regimen. We're going to change your diet. And over time, you're going to start to look and feel different. I think that's what's happening here. That we're on a diet of substance. We are working out spiritually as a church. And I believe as a result of that, God's starting to show up. Not that he hasn't in the past. He's worked in powerful ways. But as our culture is changing, I believe as a church, we're rising to that challenge. And we're starting to equip ourselves to respond appropriately. So as I said, one of the things that we're doing is we're shifting more and more from a self-focus to an other's focus. But I think we're getting specific. We're really trying to focus more on moving from self to, to the hopeless and the purposeless. What are the ramifications of that? Well, this woman's great need to have her daughter healed, it drives her to be persistent to the point that she knows that Jesus can heal her daughter. She probably didn't know how. Just like another great Canaanite woman, Rahab, did not know how her family was going to be spared exactly, but she heard enough about God that she trusted the people of God to save her family. This woman knows just enough about Jesus to trust Jesus to heal her daughter. 
I believe there are people in our community who are in that exact same place. They don't exactly know how. They may not understand it fully, but they do see something in us, I hope and I pray, that causes them to go, that's a whole lot better than what I got. I want to know more about that. And it's not going to be everybody, not everybody, but I think there are plenty who are looking for hope and purpose. And I believe the more and more and more we till that soil as a church, the more attractive we're going to be, not because of what we're doing, but because of what we're allowing God to do in us. There's a couple of traps that we have to avoid, though. Because it's easy, based on our history, and I'm talking about churches of Christ, not just our church, but it's easy, because of our history, to get pulled back into one of the traps that the Pharisees fell into. Because you see, the, the Pharisees elevated their religious tradition over the very word of God. It's a very easy trap to fall into. This, this woman cries out to the Son of God, and Jesus uses this situation to teach his disciples a profound lesson. And the, and the profound lesson is this. Jesus' redemption story is available to all who take his word and his will and make it the hope and purpose of their lives. The Pharisees focused on many regulations. The woman focused on one relationship. You see the difference? God is calling us to shift our focus, particularly from self to others even more specifically to the hopeless and the purposeless. Second, I believe that God is calling us to shift from focus on the forms of worship and giving and serving and how we do community to something that is a little bit more important, and that's being in relationship with Him. Who is this story about? Well, we know it's about a woman who is welcomed into the story of God as expressed in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. So we know it's about a woman who is welcomed into the story of God as expressed in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. In our worship, in our giving, in our serving, and how we express ourselves in community, church, we are welcomed into the very same story. But there is a danger. If we focus on the forms as a means to salvation, we lose the power of the function as a means of spiritual transformation. I want you to see this difference. The Pharisees believe if people set the forms in order, then proper actions make people righteous. The woman calls out to Jesus. That's the function, her worship. And Jesus 
sets her life in righteous order. Do you see the difference? If I could summarize this, the the Pharisees see form first, and it blocks their view of Jesus. And as a result, they remain blind. The woman sees Jesus first, and she cries out for mercy, and she is set free. Now, why is this important? Why am I talking about this? Somewhere along the way, and I don't know when this happened, but somewhere along the way, a lot of of modern believers came to the conclusion that the story is about us. Somehow or another, we decided that it was, it was about us getting it right. And I'm going to tell you this morning, if we want to unleash, truly unleash the healing power of Jesus Christ, we have got to write deep on our hearts that the story is about God expressed in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are invited into the story as God's second manifestation of himself to the world. That's the church. Like the woman in Matthew 16, when people look at us, I pray that above all else, as God's primary manifestation of the world, of himself, I pray that when they look at us that they see first and foremost Jesus who is the Christ. If we take this call to discipleship seriously, it will lead us into unexpected places. It may even lead us into some very rough terrain. But I have a hunch that if we truly believe deep in our hearts that we are part of the story of God, that we will be a people with a mercy lens that opens our eyes to those around us who need hope and purpose in Christ A lot of folks are going to say, I'm good. I don't need a thing. No thanks. And in those cases, we may not be able to walk closely with those folks, but we can walk fervently beside them in prayer. But I believe there are others who will say, tell me more. Or possibly, show me more. And when those situations arise, we've got an opportunity to help people find hope and live with purpose. It's what Jesus does here. I believe it's what we can do as a church. But our focus, our focus has got to be on the right person more than it's on the right things. And that's the challenge of the lesson today. I encourage you to wrestle with it this week in your own personal prayer time and study time. We'll look forward to seeing what God does with this. We're going to pray this morning, and then we'll continue with our assembly. Father, thank you for the blessing of the morning. Thank you for this message, which is ours today. Lord, help us to wrestle with this text and to see how we, Father, even as this woman, can bear mighty witness for the name of Jesus. In your son's name we pray. Amen.